Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You can't describe yourself as a podcast about film music without talking to the occasional composer. And we've been joined by a fair few of the best, from Clint Mansell to Justin Hurwitz and Nicholas Brutel to Jeff Barrow, Ben Salisbury and Philip Selway. Without exception, each has cast the projects they've been involved with in a new light and given us exclusive insights into the subtleties of their craft. So I'm absolutely delighted to finally bring you Daniel Pemberton in a piece recorded a few months back in his London studio. Daniel is hot property right now, having worked with Ridley Scott, Guy Ritchie, Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin. He's now provided the score for Ocean's 8, which is out around the globe already, but in the UK on Monday the 18th of June. We'll hear examples of his compositions for all these world-class directors throughout the conversation, as well as some cracking stories. But we begin with a track called First Excursion, from Mike Oldfield's Omidon, one of the first albums he ever possessed. Daniel, we've finally got there because we've been communicating via social media for quite a few months now, trying to sort this out. So thank you for having me. We have this is kind of weird doing an introduction now because we've just spent the last sort of half hour having a coffee and chatting, and yeah. walking from Borough Market to your house stroke studio, which we're now in. This is amazing. It's like a flat out of a film. How I imagine a composer to live and work. I delved into videos of you on YouTube of kind of you talking about what you do. And I totally geeked out at you geeking out about what you do. And it's really infectious how into your work you are. Yeah. That's really evident really immediately with you. Is the soundtracks and composing what you've always wanted to do? Because it feels like it's kind of, you kind of came out the womb. I guess so. Like, I kind of really wanted to start making electronic music when I was like a kid. How old? Uh, Well, I I wasn't very interested in music when I was growing up. And then my dad took me to the Planetarium by Madame Tussauds, which doesn't exist anymore because they're idiots. Um, (laughs) They've got like some Marvel superhero (laughs) video. and Yeah, but anyway, I went there and we we watched a laser show, you know, like Here Are The Planets. And hearing this music, I was just like, whoa, what the hell's this? And my brain just kind of like something flicked a switch. I really, really strongly remember just sitting in the car outside petrol boys on the radio left my own devices and suddenly just suddenly like this whole world of music had just like opened up wow. and my dad went to the library the next day and got me two cds which were jean-michel Jarre, rendezvous and mike holfield omadorn which i copied onto a, a sort of 90 minute cassette 45 minutes each side great length and i basically played that cassette pretty much non-stop every day for a year well probably longer than that
and I just was obsessed suddenly by these these kind of worlds of sound and music. Because I wasn't really into pop music, I was I was really interested in this kind of worlds that kind of music was creating. And then I kind of got really into like that kind of stuff. And then I think it was kind of around sort of early 90s when electronic ambient music was kind of happening. And I really responded to that because again it was about creating worlds out of sound mm -hmm. and it wasn't really about writing songs and I found it really exciting and liberating and different and that kind of set me on the path I guess so I made a record when I was like 16, 16 right? yeah Bedrooms. yeah sounds and through that I met a director and I started working with him and then I kind of realized record labels want to do my second album but I started to see quite quickly in the music industry I always thought it was this really free place of like just do what you want but you know I remember being at a record label and they were talking about the track listing for another artist's album I was thinking what like they don't choose their own order of track listings and I remember just thinking doing this TV stuff I just get to be really free I get to like even though it was at the time it was very much looked down upon as a kind of commercial sellout for me it just meant I got to try every type of music genre just play around in them yeah. and so from like an artistic point of view it just meant I was constantly creative and I was just constantly creating rather than creating one thing and then selling it for two years and then doing it again so I loved that and that sort of pushed me on this path towards film which in essence is kind of the same idea back when I was a kid is creating these sound worlds and then the weirdest thing is when I sometimes drive back I often work at Abbey Road well, I get cab back very late at night sometimes. I'm really tired. And the driver will often take this route and he stops. If they take this route past Baker Street, they'll stop just by this point Where by planetarium is. And if I'm really tired, I've got really, like, emotional sometimes just spotting it and just thinking, how the hell did I go from there as, like, a sort of 12-year-old kid to now? Oh, man. Yeah, it's quite magic. That's amazing. Did you play lots of instruments when you were a kid then? Or were you? Not really. I kind of, like, played the piano a bit. Because you've just done a live keyboard solo for me. Yeah, that's not very hard. Yeah, and there's so many instruments around. Is it? Is it that kind of where you kind of, where you're coming up creatively with ideas and you go, oh, I need this instrument. And so if you can't play it, you'll just learn it and teach yourself. Yeah, slightly. I mean, I'm kind of saying I'm good enough. If you don't know much about the piano, I can convince you I'm really good. <laughs> if you do know about the piano, you'll know I'm not. <laughs> um, and then guitar, I'm pretty lousy at. But even, like, being lousy at things, I think... I kind of try and work on that being a strength sometimes, yeah. trying to make that weakness an interesting feature of what I do. So I'll write something and it might end up being very musically simple because I can't play the guitar maybe that great on that track. But that means I put way more effort into how I play that mm. or think about it in a very different way so it's got something that's got a hook to it rather than just the notes. Yeah. One of the reasons it's taken us so long to actually get in a room together to talk is because you have been so busy. I mean, even just in the last couple of months, some of the films that you worked on, 
Old Money in the World. I really enjoyed it. I mean, there's a whole amazing story. I, I mean, I don't know how they managed to do that with Christopher Plummer. You're trying to find the seams. It's amazing how yeah. that was able to, to I have happen. the Kevin Spacey version here, which technically maybe I shouldn't have. But, <laughs> wow. But, you know. It's going to fetch you a lot of money in years to come. Molly's Game as well, which Darren Sorkin's directorial debut, which is yeah. kind of bonkers in itself to think that it's taken them this long to direct. But yeah, and you're working on Ocean's 8 at the minute as well. What makes you sign up for a project? It's kind of like, can I get excited about it? Like, if I can kind of look at something and think, okay, I could do something interesting here. Mm -hmm. That's really it. It's like, can I do something that I feel is going to be different or exciting? Is that from reading the script or is that from... It's everything. It's like the directors. It's, you know, it's like if you have a film like Molly's Game, for instance, with Aaron, you don't know what the score is to that. You kind of go, hmm, like, what's that going to sound like? And when I go, hmm, what's that going to sound like? That's kind of exciting, yeah. like when you kind of go, I've got to work this out. I've got to work out a way of telling this story. I love trying to tell each story quite differently. Mm-hmm. So that is always the exciting thing for me is like, how do I tell this story or this film in a different manner? And like something that feels very unique to that film. I don't know, I get offered stuff. It's really, it's really weird. I get offered stuff like every couple of days at the moment. It's really... And it's so popular. <laughs> yeah, but it's weird because I just go, no, 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 because I can't even think about it. And it's really weird what cuts through sometimes. And yeah. someone goes, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, there's certain movies, you know, you get offered and you're like, they say they want it really different, but you know, they always say they want it really different, but you know they're not going to. It's going to end up being like bang, bang, bang. And, it, you know, it depends the kind of movie. If you're doing like a very straight studio action kind of movie there's going to be a lot of pressure it's like being a director Danny Boyle will only do movies under 20 million because he can keep control of them then yeah and when you've got like big big movies there's a lot of pressure for them to sound like everything else so I'm trying to like make things not sound like everything else under the radar With Molly's game, for example, when you know you're like, oh, "What does it sound like?" Do you then pitch to Aaron what you think the sound is going to be? Then with Molly's game, I I met Aaron in Toronto where he was filming. We went for like dinner at the Four Seasons, which was the most Aaron Sorkin kind of dinner. <laughs> it was an amazing dinner. It's just like we started talking about the liquor industry and how to make the best whiskey sours and it was like one of these things like oh my god I feel like I'm in an Aaron Sorkin film <laughs> I remember having this conversation just thinking I actually sound really intelligent for once which doesn't often happen and anyway he, he talked through like what he wanted to do with the music he basically wanted a, like a strong melody like a theme for Molly that paid off at the end mm. that was his main thing and he was like I want this big orchestral score and I was thinking no you don't you don't want that for this film so I kept kind of saying I don't think this film wants that because reading the script it was very contemporary and I wanted to capture that world of these guys playing poker and Molly fitting into that world it was quite a grubby undergroundy contemporary world I wanted to reflect that in the music. So I said, look, let me do what I think I want to do. If you don't like it, fine, we can bin it. Yeah. And we can go for plan B. But I, I always try and do that. I always basically say, look, let me do something. If you don't like it, we can always bin it and try something else. And that does happen often. But if I get in early enough, I can basically fail, which is my big thing of trying to do stuff that possibly is going to fail. And then we've got back time for a backup. So with that, I was just sort of trying to just 
make a score that felt like a like almost like a band score yeah. like almost like a bunch of bands had scored this movie rather than a film composer I didn't really want it to feel like a, a film Fish composer yeah. score yeah Steve Jobs that connection or yeah I'd met him on Steve Jobs at the end when we did a bit of promotion for it and then we went to the Golden Globes together this makes me sound <laughs> like I'm some kind of real cheesy uh, but yeah I went to the, I, I sat next to him and Molly Molly was on our table the real Molly from Molly's game wow. and I didn't know who she was at this point she sort of explained that she ran this kind of poker game and that a lot of people in this room were really pissed off with her and I thought she's talking about bankers or like yeah, investment yeah. people I didn't know I didn't yeah. realize it was all the actors yeah, so he basically really loved what I did for Steve Jobs. He was like, you've written me an opera. That's like the greatest gift ever. I was like, oh, that's nice. He, Aaron is amazing at compliments, you know. If I ever feel really down, I'll just read the sleeve notes to Molly's game probably. That will get me back up. He's like really warm, lovely guy to work for. And, you know, for me also, it was amazing. That was his first movie he directed because it really felt like he'd done about 20 beforehand. And I guess he's been in the game a long time. So he's been slowly picking stuff up secretly and then has just worked out how to, you know, make a film and do it really well. Can we talk about Steve Jobs? Because it was yeah. it was incredible in, in terms of that, you know, the three acts of it all, almost and kind of trying to have different, I guess, different scores for each of those. And it was really brilliant hearing you t describe them and I think you were kind of, you know, give you an opportunity and one of them to kind of be the... 80s keyboard wizard that you'd always wanted to be and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that was me living my Vangelis from a shell shell fantasies. <laughs> your idea in terms of these this this sounding different for each kind of almost decade kind of thing yeah i met with danny and you know i read the script and he talked about how he's going to do each act very differently and i just thought well it seems a no like let's try and do every act musically differently i like like again it's like how do you give something some kind of identity like how how can you make a film feel special yeah and you know ideas like that are like a really strong way in because the thing about doing a film is like having a blank piece of paper and if someone says, draw me a picture, draw me 10 pictures, you're like, I don't know what 
I could draw anything. Well, if you say, draw me 10 cars, you're like, okay, I can draw 10 cars and make them really cool, or mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever I'm going to do, but you're going to remember it. Hey, that guy did, I know this is a bad metaphor, but like, hey, do you remember that painting of 10 cars? Yeah, great. Rather than like, do you remember those 10 random paintings that didn't make any sense or look like every other painting? <laughs> um, so for me, that's a strong way in to start off how I'm going to approach a score and like, like have an idea, like try and come up with some kind of concept in my head of what I want it to sound like and then start exploring that kind of sound world or melodic world. And I love the idea of going from technology and like the birth of technology and the limitations and excitement of technology in the 80s, which felt, it was really exciting, like synthesizers and computers, it felt like the future. Like nothing really feels like the future anymore. Like the things that feel like the future are really depressing, like weird social media apps. Whereas that sound was really exciting. So I wanted to capture, and also the launch of the Mac, you know, it's like this whole new world, which has basically from that point transformed our world now. So I wanted to capture that, that spirit. then we have a second act I wanted to capture this like P.T. Barnum aspect of like Steve Jobs which is this like showman and create this very kind of grand operatic sound And then by the third act, I wanted to kind of do the digital world we live in now, which is just doing everything on the iMac. terms of you see you like to get in as early oh as yeah i mean i was working before they were even filming so amazing i was writing is that the dream yeah it's kind of the dream i mean well the real dream isn't to say hey hey dan we've got this movie it's got to be finished next week um <laughs> uh can you just come up with a really great idea and you do it first idea and they have to take it and it's brilliant and it works that's the dream okay. but it's no, never <laughs> really gonna time. happen <laughs> yeah. yeah no i like having a lot of time so on that, as soon as I got the script, I was on board, I was writing. Danny was shooting it in order as well. So he was doing act one, then act two and act three. So I was sending him stuff while he was on set and he'd send me notes. He sends really good notes. He's a very diligent director, Danny. And it was going really well, which was annoying because I was going to go out to San Francisco and hang out with everyone on set. <laughs> and they were basically like, we don't want to send you out because it's going really well. So we want you to keep doing what you're doing. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was looking forward to a little trip to San Francisco to hang out with Michael Fassbender. (laughs) 
didn't half home. No, I just sat at home, oh, feeling mate. very unglamorous. Then you got to go and do the, you know, the press tour though, and hung out with them all. So you, yeah, hung out with them a bit. No one really cares about composers. <laughs> I do. Yeah, you I do. Really this do. is great. I really do. Ridley Scott as well, you know, you kind of worked with Ridley a couple of times. Yeah. How did that relationship start? And, well, Ridley's kind of like the big key towards everything that happened to me in some ways. I did a movie called The Awakening, which was a great overlooked movie by this fantastic director called Nick Murphy. Um, You've done a number of things with him. Yeah, so I've worked with Nick a lot and I love Nick. And Nick is like really good at using music and understanding how to make music work and anyway this film comes out Rebecca Hall Dominic West period ghost story it's a great film go see it it really uh, is a great film and I basically like that's my first big film score and I was just like right, I'm sinking everything you know I spent the entire budget like, I made no money I just spent everything on the score because I was like it's got to sound amazing And we did a really cool, I was really, really proud of that film. But it kind of came out, you know, like many films do, did a bit and then disappeared and that was kind of it. But what did happen was Ridley Scott saw it and he came in one day and was just raving about it in the edit to his editor, who's an, uh, this guy, amazing guy called Pietro Scalia, who's like the greatest editor, who did like Gladiator, JFK, Black Hawk Down, Good Will Hunting, like super legend. And I'd worked with him on a short film ages ago and we were kind of buddies and he was like oh I know Daniel you know I've been telling you about him and he's like oh uh, anyway so like, let's get him in for a meeting so I had a meeting with Ridley Scott and he like quizzed me on how I did things and and everything and he was like the thing about it that I, I always say but it was really interesting he was like he basically said to me I learned everything through doing advertising and I did my 10,000 hours in the garage doing adverts and I learned how to direct and he's like you've done that in TV you've done your 10,000 hours in the garage so I can see that and so I was like that's the coolest compliment like Ridley Scott saying you know you've earned your stripes the way I earn my stripes which yeah. is just doing because Ridley's a doer yeah he's just like just do 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 so we get on pretty well because I've kind of got a like that like fuck it let's just do it yeah. attitude and so yeah I did the counsellor with him 
Yeah, that was great. And so that was that was the start. Once you got the kind of Ridley Scott thumbs up, like the film is a bit like a sort of party, and there's a big bouncer on the door basically, and you can't just turn up and go, "Hey, I'm a composer." They go, "Ah, no, you can't come in." But a director might get their first little invite in. They go in, and what happens? The doorman might say to Nick Murphy, for instance, be like, "Right, what's your name, Nick Murphy?" In you come. Oh, is that guy with you, Daniel? He's not a film guy. And Nick either goes, oh, isn't he? Sorry, see you later, Dan, bye. <laughs> or he goes, no, he's with me, he's coming in, or I'm not coming in. And they go, oh, yeah, all right, so you come in. And then you're in the little party, and you've got to kind of hang around and see if you can get chucked out <laughs> quickly. But then, like, you know, when Ridley Scott spots you and you start chatting to Ridley, oh, he's chatting to Ridley Scott, oh, he must be important, he must know what he's doing. <laughs> and then suddenly, once he's done that a bit, everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he knows what he's doing, we'll hire him for a movie, possibly. And you're still in the party? I'm still in the party just about. I've got like a load of canapes in my pocket that no one's seen. I've stashed some booze around somewhere in case it runs out. You say you're at the party though, but you are genuinely a fan of film as well because I see you at lots of things. I, I remember yeah. seeing you going to a couple of premieres just to watch the film, you know, not, not necessarily working on them. But then also we were talking about how you'd been at a couple of events that Clint Manso had done to watch a Q&A that he'd done and that kind of thing. Yeah. You love the world. You're a fan of the world. Oh, know? yeah, I mean... Like I love like what other composers are doing. You know, like my favourite kind of movies. I go one, I go, am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, yeah I just go fuck. <laughs> like if I'm watching a film and it's and it makes me go fuck, it's really good and annoying because basically a really good score makes me go fuck because <laughs> I'm like, damn, that's like way better than I would have done or more interesting. And I get really excited by music where I go, this is exactly what I want to be doing, but this person's doing it better than me. And not that I think I'm like super great, but I just always trying to like push yeah. for like trying to do something I feel is really original. And every time I hear someone else do something like that and they do it better, way better, I get really a mixture of like incredibly excited, incredibly depressed. What was um, the last film that made you go, ah. um, I haven't seen Black Panther yet, but the score is really good. Like, I listened to the score, Ludwig's score, and I was actually in Abbey Road when he was recording it, and I actually snuck in uh, in the percussion section and just hid behind there, which is really interesting for me because like, I'm not normally in orchestral sessions. I'm normally, like, s sat in a room, like, putting my hair out, like, looking at the clock. But to be in someone else's session was quite good fun. But, I, but when I was there, they were just doing orchestral stuff, so I hadn't heard all the stuff he'd done in Africa. So that was... A, that was when you when you hear that score and you hear all the different elements in it. It's really, especially for that kind of movie, like a big studio superhero movie, is it's really exciting. To, to Ryan actually about it and 
Nate, the producer, and and hearing the kind of the the research that that Ludwig had done on it, going. To he really did do his research. Everyone says, oh, "I did my research," which basically means, "Oh, I met a guy who plays a sitar or something." <laughs> he, no, he you know going to DRC and and that and speaking and chatting to uh, and recording proper local musicians in yeah. that area and stuff as well. So it was really interesting to hear them kind of talk about the depth of research that he'd kind of done for that. Yeah. Every time there's good work, I like get excited. Mm. You know, I love like I love going to movies when you see a good film. Yeah. And or you hear a great score. You know, every time you do a film, everyone tried. Okay. You know, some people might not have tried as hard as the others, but ev- no one wants to go and make a bad movie. Everyone wants to make a good movie, and I have so much more sympathy for what seem like bad movies now because to make a like a perfect movie is so in- it's like so many factors. Every single yeah. person on that production has to be at the top of their game and like really doing it. You know, there's so much effort goes into any kind of production. It's amazing. Once you can start appreciating that, it's always really fascinating because they're just these great works of art that just exist and sometimes they're like lousy works of art but there'll always be something in, in them. It's a bit like I say if you go to some sort of dinner and you're stuck next to someone who's quite boring, I'm always like they must have something interesting. There's, there, there's some story in there that's really interesting and it's like trying to find that and when you find it, it's great. Yeah. And I always think that's the same with films. You know, even if a film's not perfect there'll always be something in there that you can appreciate yeah do you know what i loved as well one of the films that you worked on cuban fury okay oh good yeah I love Nick Frost. I could watch Nick sleeping and he would make me feel happy. Really? I think you I might find that, that a bit weird. Well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, and it was a lovely story, that film, in terms of getting that script to Naira and stuff and, and not having the courage to send her it. And it's a brilliant story and, and I, I love that. I love when kind of good people, good things happen. And it was a funny, brilliant experience watching that film. Yeah, that was fun. Although there's my, my biggest bugbear is I did this insanely complicated record scratching scene for a fight <laughs> and I ended up using the temp music and I still kind of go, ah! Like, I basically, <laughs> I remember spending a massive train journey, London to Edinburgh, editing five hours of record scratching to, like, make this whole sequence, like, all work. Like, I'd record all these horns and I'd resampled them and re-scratched them. And, um, anyway, they, they ditched it for a cut chemist track. Ah, I'm still bitter. Oh dear, I wish I had missed. No, 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 but I like, I got, I got a lot of love for that film. It's a, it's a really fun movie. Yeah, really fun. Vangelis. What other composers are 
kind of big influences on you or you're a big admirer of? Well, like, number one is probably Morricone. Like, he's the kind of all-time one, just because his career is so crazy and it sort of feels like he doesn't give a fuck a lot of the time. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to make some duck sounds on top of this, like, action sequence. Um, and the kind of things you... Sometimes you go, well, what the hell is he doing? And you're like, it's so weird that it's brilliant. I mean, what I love about Morricone is his... One is his, like, unbelievable talent for just melody and emotion and just hitting you in the heart in two seconds. Mm. But then also his just really experimental adoption of interesting sounds. I mean, some of those scores are so weird, but because they've become kind of part of popular culture, you don't even question the fact that, like, I think it's Good, Bad and the Ugly main theme. There's just people saying, we will fight. It's crazy. We can fight. We can fight. just used to those tracks but you start pulling them apart and it's amazing and if you really want an amazing experience of like what a composer can do in in their life go on Spotify or something click Morricone and just click shuffle and he's got what like 50 years of music and it's so varied and so fascinating that just hitting shuffle is the most amazing way to experience someone's output and my dream is to one day someone hit shuffle on me (laughs) (laughs) I love that I love what he did most recently with with the Tarantino film. That kind of yeah, opening bon shot. Bon yeah. oh, it's just... I mean, that's kind of like a weird classic Morricone-like... Um... But the fact that he kind of wrote a horror score, you know, for a yeah, Western... Yeah, and was... totally ignored what... Like, when you yeah, see interviews with Tarantino, brilliant. like, OK, yes, I'm a bit of a geek and I do go to lots of things like this. So I've ever seen his interviews with Tarantino and he kind of seemed pretty pissed that Morricone hadn't done exactly what he, he thought has, he was yeah. going to do. And, of course, what I think a good composer does... Not all the time, but sort of the, kind of listens to the director, but kind of also ignores them. I think a great composer takes on board stuff, but kind of also says, no, 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 you don't want this, you want this. Mm. And, you know, Morricone is just a fascinating, great example of that. Thank you. 
And then there's loads of others. I mean, I could just yeah. rattle names it's, off for ages. It's funny you saying that because I met when we did. Um, we spoke to Derek C in France for this for this for the podcast, and yeah. he was talking about kind of being pushed outside his comfort zone by his composer, by Alexander Desplat for his last film, like like Between yeah. Oceans, yeah. And and how he, you know he was he never expected it to be his composer who pushed him outside his comfort zone to challenge himself, and he found it the most rewarding experience. Yeah, I mean, that's great to hear. That I mean, Desplat is really interesting. Like, again, got a lot of love for Desplat's work when he's not being lazy, but when he's like really throwing everything in, he's. Yeah. I mean, even even like a like a not great Desplat score is still like a zillion times better than most. But what's interesting about him is he's very much well, from what I know, he does it, and it's like here you go, and he's very like I know best, like in terms not like I know, but he's not. I feel like very bad talking out of hand here, but composer. But his attitude of like, I'm a composer. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Let me do what I do. Mm-hmm. And he's got a very charming personality. It means he can like force those things through, which is why his scores sound so great because he's not bending over backwards to appease every note. Obviously, he will be some, but like the reason I think his scores have such a great sound is because he's got a very strong mindset and a sort of singular vision of like how to achieve them. How do you think you're described as a composer? Oh, messy, clown-like. <laughs> um, I don't know. Depends who's who you're asking. Who you're asking? <laughs> Drunk. Um, uh, I don't know. It's it's. I kind of like. I would like to be a kind of composer. It's hard to work out who they are mm-hmm. in a way. Like if you listen to all the money in the world, and then you listen to. Um, yeah, or like Molly's Game, or even like the Black Mirror thing recently. You kind of go, like, they all feel slightly different. I think I've got a sound, certain sort of things. Like, there's a lot of rhythmic stuff recently. But I would always like to be the kind of composer where you, you kind of go, oh, I can't wait to hear mm-hmm. what they're going to do next. Where you, you know, you're going to be excited rather than like, well, I know what this is going to be. It'll be nice and lush. Well, from what you very kindly just let me hear a yeah. little bit from Ocean's 8. I can't wait to see the film from here and okay. that. Okay, oh good. Yeah, yeah. That, that might change. I don't know. It, it, <laughs> we're recording in two weeks and we seem to be changing it still every couple of days.
score was was absolutely brilliant. In terms of kind of 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 the score having its own voice, yeah. But but it also being perfect for the film. I just thought it was it was great, and it was. We spoke to Guy about it, um, and I know that he worked too hard. He yep. himself admitted that he, he made your life hell. I think those were his words. Um, and I would but... say that's a very polite <laughs> and charitable way of putting it. <laughs> Can I take you back if it's not too painful? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, what that is. It's fine, it's fine. Uh, um, No, uh, with that, like, it it took a long time to work out what Guy wanted because he's quite vague in his direction. Mm -hmm. Like, I always say his greatest strength is that he doesn't want things to feel like stuff you've heard before and sound like things you've heard before. So, you know, if you started doing stuff that sounded like 60s Bond stuff, it'd just be like, ah, this is bollocks. And he always wants things that feel unusual and that can totally transform a scene and also the music really drives his films so as a composer that is great because you're basically becoming like a, a very big part of, of the puzzle of the film yeah. you know, it's like being a leading man whereas often you might be a supporting actor or something but it also means you have like loads and loads of pressure on you and it really has to work because if it doesn't then the film doesn't work so with that you know we'd have all these sequences you know it's a lot of sequences and he wants them all to feel like tracks. He doesn't really like them feeling like film score. And I've worked with, he's got this amazing editor, who's this guy called James Herbert, who's just genius, brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. And so I'd often work very closely with James and we'd come up with ideas that would get to Guy and then Guy would kind of give his Emperor-style thumbs up or thumbs down. And so you'd end up redoing scenes like many, many, many times, like multiple, multiple, multiple times. Some things would stick quite quickly. Others would just like, you just want to like shoot yourself because you've redone the sequence and like for the hundredth time You know, there's things like there's a really big sequence at the end where there's this big raid and that was done in a couple of hours in an evening at like 11 at night or something where I got a phone call saying there's a screening tomorrow, studio looking at it, we've got to change the sequence, just do something different. And I was just like, oh man, I don't know what I'm wow. gonna, like. And this happens quite a lot and it's be like, uh, all right, so I'll just come up with something. And that sometimes creates some good stuff.
mean, on King Arthur, we had that quite a lot. You know, a couple of the best sequences in King Arthur are because it was just like, oh, shit, I've got to do something in the morning. And it's like, it's 11 o'clock at night mm. and I can't get hold of any musicians because no one's going to want to work for you at this time. So I have to do everything myself and I can't do this very well. So let's, there's like a couple of things in King Arthur. There's a bit where they go to Darklands. There's this bat sequence. It's got this mad kind of wow, wow, wow sort of sound. And that is literally me going wow, wow, wow. <laughs> because I couldn't work out. I knew what I wanted to get as a sound, <laughs> but I couldn't work out how I could get it in time. So I just basically got a microphone and went wow, wow, wow. And I put loads of distortion on it. I was like, actually, this sounds kind of cool. <laughs> um, and you listen to it, and that obviously now I've given the game away slightly, but, you know, that that's quite an unusual part of the film, and it only exists because I didn't have any time. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anyone to work with, so I just, me going, wow. There's a bit, I think it's like two in the morning or something, and there's this really weird thing of my face being like totally red because I've been going, like slapping my face for like an hour and trying to make all these noises. And I just remember thinking, man, this is not how I envisage doing Hollywood films with me on my own in my flat, two in the morning, with a red face having slapped it for like an hour, trying to redo this cue for the hundredth time. But then that ended up in the movie, and it's like quite a cool sequence. That's brilliant. at night and you've got to deliver some by the morning where do you where do you look for inspiration what's 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 your kind of it's often like blind panic it's kind of like oh like i like trying to create all the sounds like i'm trying to make every sound in a film like something that only exists in that film yeah so i try not to use like here's the cool samples of the day or Mm -hmm. presets so i always try and build my own instruments or sounds there was a great one i watched actually you doing in one of the videos on youtube which was he'd sampled the distortion of a guitar and then you'd made that a kind of a file that you'd put through a keyboard and then you use it was yeah so i try and do a lot of that yeah this is a just um a guitar feedback hum uh, 
put through the tremolo and then I'm fiddling around with the tremolo speed and you can hardly hear it but just it just gives it this really which is not really going to come across on this very well I, I don't imagine but it just gives it this amazing warm sort of sound that's totally natural you know it's but it sounds like a synth it's got some interesting kind of movement in it like stereo and I always think if you can make music it's very hard for people to copy not that I really care about people copying it but I like that thing of like you know someone else can't get this keyboard and press that one button and do the same thing you know even like on Oceans at the moment like we found the studio we're using in New York had this stairwell where they'd recorded the drums for um, Born in the USA it's that snare sound we just found this out by accident when we just asked for a tour of like the other bits and he says oh this is a stairwell and i was like okay hang on this is really cool can we use the stairwell and they're like yeah yeah sure so we ended up miking up the stairwell and recording bongos for the film which sounded great crazy massive reverb and then i was like oh we've got to record some other stuff in here so we ended up recording with claps and other percussion and then now i've got a whole bunch of these really cool weird percussive sounds which i'm just dropping in which i might not have done if i hadn't fiddled around in that stairwell you know in the pressure of the studio time i wouldn't have been like hey let's spend like five hours hitting jingle bells in the stairwell just to see what it sounds like. That's amazing. It's so kind of, I hate using that word organic, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it is that kind of, that natural progression of ideas that and places and everything around you seems to inspire or influence what you're doing. Every composer spends way too much time looking at a computer screen and not enough engaging with music in the way we should engage with it. Mm. Working on the computer gives you an amazing control for writing and uh, precision. Mm -hmm. But moving away from that, you get like a whole different world of like, energy chaos and it's trying to sort of take a bit of that world and then still have the order because when you're doing like big films if it's just all energy and chaos it's impossible to mm. make it work which is why a lot of big films end up sounding quite similar even if you look at like something like john williams for instance it's very hard to write that kind of very melodic orchestral writing if your cut is changing every couple of days you know if you're writing something that's a bit more i don't say modern but like paired back minimal and grid-like it's easy to chop out a few bars but if you've musically got something that has to hit a certain point and, they, and they're changing the cut every day it's a nightmare so that's kind of like one of the things with modern films you know you've got to work as a composer in the world you live in you know you can say oh, i really want to be like john williams and write these big things but the reality is if you've got a cut that's changing every day you have to come up 
with a different way of working because the way you want to work is not going to get the best result on screen at the end because it'll be chopped to crap or it won't make any sense. So on the big films, you'd always try and work out some kind of system of like how we're going to deal with this. So like on Oceans, for instance, we've recorded a whole load of stuff in New York and we've done it so it's very easy to edit the performances and then I'm rewriting stuff on top of that I mean, it's like a weird puzzle. Every every job is a puzzle, and I don't have a system. Like, some composers have a system, and it's like, here's what I do, we do this, and then this happens. But I like not having that, because it means every film is is going to be different. And then I'm doing a film, which I can't talk about yet. Oh, um, no. That's all right. Uh, it means we can come back for the next episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a very good director I might have worked with before. And oh. we're talking about trying to record it on my iPhone because I did some stuff on my iPhone and it sounds so rough yeah, yeah, yeah. that it was sort of fascinating how emotional the kind of crapness, not the crapness, but just having that recording quality. Yeah. You know, I'm just always interested in like what's going to create something different. You know, you could get more emotion out of an iPhone stuck by the piano and playing a few little notes on the piano, possibly than a 90 piece orchestra at Abbey Road. Yeah. I'm not saying you would, but I'm saying there's always the possibility of every different medium having its you know it's like it's like the thing that's great about being a film composer is this thing of straddling all these different worlds of music and you actually start to see music in a very pragmatic way and there's so much snobbery in the world about music yeah and they're like oh orchestral music you must be a proper composer oh rock music that's silly um and rock people like oh classical music's boring you know but you start to look at like okay well what gives you power like a rock band with like distorted guitar and one electric bass and a drum can have more power than like a 60-piece orchestra but at the same time the 60-piece orchestra like might have a precision or a a different weight or can transform itself into other things very quickly and so you start to look at like the strengths of every type of music and the weaknesses you know like a 909 kick drum sounds great it's so like tough whereas you know if you do a track with a 909 note and you're trying to make it really emotional it's probably not going to be great although it could be but in the right situation in the right situation yeah. i mean someone who can write an emotional cue on a, just on a 909 kick drum <laughs> will get massive hats off from me <laughs> what's the not wish list, but do you have kind of do you have things that you want to do and people you want to work with? Sort of. I used to like be like, oh, I really want to work with this person, but then you kind of find out, oh, they're like a total nightmare with music. <laughs> like I think for me, it's always a project. The idea of like a project coming up that kind of makes me go, oh, that's you know, like certain worlds. Like I always secretly did want to do the new Blade Runner. Like I dropped lots of very unsubtle hints to Ridley constantly. <laughs> <laughs> which didn't work because he wanted me to do his film I was just like oh, oh selfish
love to see you walk with Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, well, that's I really like to do Dune. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's like every project is different. And when I was working on TV, every story was kind of had some sort of fun challenge. I did a, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, I did this like documentary years ago about people obsessed, sexually obsessed by fat people, right? Like really, really massive, massive fat people. And they couldn't move out of their house. And that was their turn on. And you're like, now I probably wouldn't do that show. But even that time, I was like, right, how can I make this interesting? Yeah. So I ended up recording myself singing over like Barry White tracks at like double speed so I could slow down and just sound like Barry White like this like this kind of like you know oh yeah and screwed type vibe a bit like oh you know oh yeah by yellow yeah like like I just did a score like that which was and that was just fun just slowing your voice down and you're like hey this is a cool trick and this is an interesting way of doing a documentary about massive 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 people um who can't get out of bed (laughs) because they're basically kind of in this very weird relationship where someone else won't let them leave the house so they keep feeding them food um but you know it's like every story like yeah it's got its purpose and it's got also got its journey for you in terms of you know what you creatively do and bring to a project along the way and leads on to the next thing just trying to come up with a new different way of doing what you do each week not each week but you know each project gets you excited because it's not like it's not like another day at the office it's like right what we're doing what we're doing now how are we going to make this exciting for me and for everyone who watches it because I'm the thing I'm always like is when people watch it how are they going to feel like I basically want to be the guy in the cinema going yeah this is cool like <laughs> I'm enjoying this yeah yeah I, want, I basically want every other composer to be going fuck <laughs> that feels like the perfect place to um, say thank you but please can we come back for part two when you can talk more about the next project yeah. revisit and a director you might have worked with yeah. already yeah thanks for your time Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Bye. From the score to Ocean's 8, that's Sloppy Soup Samba by Daniel Pemberton, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the supremely gifted British composer. My huge thanks to Daniel for taking the time to talk to us and for sharing so many great stories about the movies he's worked on. 
Oceans 8 is out in some places around the world already and in the UK on Monday the 18th of June. Now you can catch up with all of our previous episodes via iTunes, including my chats with composers Justin Hurwitz, Clint Mansell, Junkie XL, Nicholas Bratel, and Radiohead's Philip Selway, amongst many others. That's also the place to rate and subscribe to the podcast. Now, we have a dedicated Spotify playlist for soundtracking, which is where you can hear the vast majority of the cues we play in the order they appear. So if you haven't yet checked that out, then please do, because you can explore the wonderful music that we're able to include in the podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do continue to spread the word for us. Next up, returning for a second sitting is director J.A. Bayona, who we thoroughly enjoyed talking to about his previous film, A Monster Calls. He's back to tell us about his experience of working on Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm -hmm. 